Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Uh, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Uh, you can also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, I know we haven't been contributing to that as much lately. We've been pretty busy, but Lord willing, later this year we'll be able to pick that up again. But check that out. we got a lot of good material up there at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, and today we have a special guest with us to uh, continue our discussion in an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. We're going to be discussing Chapter 4 today. Um, we have Pastor J. Ryan Davidson from Hampton, Virginia. Uh, he is Pastor of Grace Baptist Chapel uh, down in Hampton, which is near Virginia Beach. Uh, but Pastor Davidson, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, brothers. Glad to be here with you. So can you give us a little bit of background on yourself before we dive into the Catechism? Sure. Uh, you mentioned I've chapel. I've uh, been there just a little over 13 years. Uh, we're a 1689 fellowship there on the coast. Uh, I'm married to Christy. We have four kids, uh, basically ages 15 down to seven, uh, and uh, went to Sanford University undergrad, College of William and Mary, uh, the Southern Seminary, and trying to finish. You know how that goes, perhaps <laughs> trying forever to finish uh, the PhD dissertation through the Free University of Amsterdam. So. Wow. Uh, and you also have a book published, correct? Yeah, the most the most recent one uh, is uh, a, a primer on the ordinary means of grace. Yeah, called Green Pastures with Reformed Baptist Academic Press. Okay, okay. We'll be sure to check that out uh, to our listeners. Um, but today we're going to be talking about uh, an Orthodox Catechism, who Christ is in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, this is, I think, one of the longer chapters in the Catechism. And uh, you know, we've been going through this catechism throughout the, I think we started in, F, in 21, didn't we, this year? I don't even yeah, know. Something. It's been a little bit since we've... Uh, yeah, this has kind of been an on and off uh, study that we've been doing. But um, this is probably one of the more important uh, discussions that we're going to be having, because we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is matters, and what we believe about Christ matters. If we get the person of Christ wrong, um, it can have an impact on our eternal destination. Um, so understanding who Jesus is is very important, and I think that's why uh, Mr. Collins went so deep into this topic is because it, it is so important that we understand who uh, Jesus is. Yeah. And so, Sean, if you want to start uh, our discussion today, that'd be great. Yeah, um, so the first question might seem a little bit obvious, but as Dan was yeah. going through, it is it is really important. Uh, Pastor Davidson, uh, why is knowing Christ so important to our faith? Well, that's a great question, uh, brothers. Uh, in short, Christ is um, uh, the, the mediator. He is uh, the eternal Son of God who at a particular moment in time put on our flesh and has become our full and complete substitute, uh, wrath-bearing atonement. And uh, he is offered to anyone who will receive him in the gospel. And so because he is the scope of Scripture, because he is the mediator between God and man, uh, getting him right is absolutely necessary. Um, and so that's that's the short reason why I would say it's so important. When we when we go astray in aspects of Christ, then other threads of doctrine, like salvation, among others, uh, really begin to be um, uh, tweaked. And so we, we've got to get Christ right according to the scriptures. Amen. And I think that the Apostle John brings it out very well in First John that if we don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, then we're not his. Um, and what does that mean that Jesus is the Christ? He's the anointed son of God. He is God. 
Um, he is the anointed one of God. I think that leads us into our next question here. In question 30 of uh, chapter 4 of the Catechism, um, it reads, Why is he called Christ that is anointed? So why is he set apart um, really from the others of the Godhead as it relates to his anointing? What What's the significance of that? Well, it's a good question uh, because we would certainly affirm that all three uh, persons of the Trinity, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are co-equal in power and glory and, and are uh, worthy of worship to the same degree. But because the second person of the Trinity is the one who has been sent um, by the Father to redeem a people uh, unto the triune God, so much of the scripture points to him and his role. It, it, in the Old Testament, it promises his coming. Obviously, in the New Testament, it tells of what he's done. And then in, in the latter part of the New Testament, it, it explains why that work is so important. And so because the scripture places him in that position of being the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah of, of God to be the Redeemer, to put on our flesh and to be like unto us in every way, except without sin, there is a, a highlighting of the second person of the Trinity. Um, he is not more worthy of worship. He is not uh, more powerful than the Father or the Spirit, mm -hmm. uh, co-equal, and yet um, receives certain attention because he is the one who has been sent, and by faith in him, uh, human beings can can be saved does that make sense yeah 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 it and i think that's something you know and that kind of goes you can have discussions of the doctrine of god with regards to that as well um but yeah that, that makes a lot of sense and you know question 32 kind of tying into that goes into the nature of who god is um to some extent it says for what cause is christ called the only begotten son of god when we are also called sons of God. So there's somewhat this idea of talking about begottenness and how Christ is distinguished from the Father. Um, but what what does that mean exactly when we say that Christ is begotten? I think that's a that's a term that's misunderstood quite a bit uh, in the Christian world. Yeah, that's a great question, and and I'm so glad you asked it because it is one as you mentioned. It's, it, it can be confused, but I think it's also one even in how we translate our uh, scriptures. Uh, meaning from from Greek to English, that some of the translations use the word begotten, and 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 the temptation is to kind of change that to modernize it. But begotten is a crucial aspect of the doctrine of uh, of Christ of Christology. Um, let me we'll, we'll take a kind of a jump outside of um, uh, Collins's Catechism for just a moment. Let me just give us a brief definition. Uh, I'll use uh, Lewis Burkhoff and his systematic theology, uh, which I would commend to, to your listeners. Uh, might tweak a few pages on baptism, but but other than that, <laughs> I mean, he talks about how Jesus being begotten means he is the son of the father, right? Well, I have two sons, got two daughters. I have two sons. In one sense, they are begotten or they come out of me. I am the, the father of those two sons. But it is not an eternal begottenness. It's not an mm. eternal generation. When we speak of Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, rather, when we speak of the, the second person of the Trinity, we say that he is eternally begotten. It means he is always the son of and from the father. And yet there was not a time 
when that occurred in time. It wasn't as if there was a moment, you know, a billion years ago where the sun became the sun. So let me read to you just a, a sentence or two from Burkhoff that sure. I think is helpful. He says, if the generation of the sun is a necessary act of the father so that it is impossible to conceive of him as not generating, it naturally shares in the eternity of the Father. This does not mean, however, that it is an act that was completed in the far distant past, mm -hmm. but rather that it is a timeless act, the act of an eternal present, an act always continuing and yet never completed. Its eternity follows not only from the eternity of God, but also from the divine immutability and from the true deity of the Son. Now, I could keep reading, but you get the idea that that Burkhoff and, and classical theologians down through the ages want to maintain that Jesus is, the second person of the Trinity, is always the Son of the Father, and yet we can't say that this began to happen at a particular point in time, right? Does that, does that make sense? I know it gets kind of technical, but begottenness or eternal generation is how we should properly speak of the second person of the Trinity. And, and yeah. some people might also call it filiation. Right. Yep, affiliation. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's that's actually really important um, because people will get tripped up thinking about God in a temporal sense, right? Because right. we we are temporal creatures, we're mm -hmm. always thinking in temporal categories. But God is atemporal, so it's perfectly reasonable to say that the Son is eternally begotten, um, using our our limited language there. But right. um, yeah, no, God is atemporal, so there is no beginning of the begottenness of the Son. It's 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 all in a sense always happening if you want yeah. to speak it speak about it like that yeah 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 and you and that was one of the probably the central tenet of nicaea with regards to arianism you know was jesus eternally begotten of the father of the same substance the homo usios of the father or was he uh simply lesser than the father some sort of created being as arius um thought so i think that we have to remember that our language is going to be uh, analogous. It's not going to be univocal. And that's a mistake I think that we fall into. When we say begotten, we tend to think of it in our terms, like Sean said, but we have to make our language speak um, as it relates to God as best we can, even though it is limited. Yes, that's a, that's a very good and helpful distinction um, that, that our language will ultimately fail us in, in a sense. Mm. Um, and you mentioned Arius. I mean, just that, that historical kind of trumpet phrase of the Arians, right? There once was a time when the sun was not, right? Mm. And we would say, you know, um, along with Athanasius and others, there has never been a time when the sun was not the son of the father and yet co-equal with the father, right? And, and so these are crucial things for us. Yeah, our, the gospel is in balance at that point, and, and Christ cannot have sustained the, the eternal wrath of God if he is not eternal himself. So we, we, you have all these problems with the atonement um, at that point if Jesus is not truly God of the same essence as the Father. That's right. All right, so moving on to question 33, um, which is uh, why do we call him our Lord, that being Jesus? And I do want to note that as we're going through, we're not necessarily going to read every question and answer. We're just using this sort of as a framework to talk about um, things related to uh, the Son of God. But um, even before answering this question, uh, what's the importance that Christ is our Lord? Why is that important? Well, 
ultimately, um, he, he is, he is the Lord of all those that he saves and he is the Lord of all things. Right. I mean, I think the, the catechism there, and I agree with you, we're not necessarily reading each, each sentence, um, and question, but you know, the, the, the catechism there begins by saying, uh, pointing to the redemption aspect because he this is reading from Collins's catechism because he redeeming and ransoming both our body and soul from sin not with gold or silver but with his precious blood and delivering us from all the power of the devil has set us free to serve him that serving Christ serving the Lord flows naturally out of having been redeemed by the Lord by mm. his blood by his uh, death burial resurrection uh, by his perfect righteousness being imputed to us in the act of justification, right? Which is mm -hmm. a glorious truth. And so that frees us to serve. And so we we are servants, he is master, or we are servants, he is Lord. Um, and that's also a necessary, I don't want to get us too far off topic, but that's also a necessary thing to say when we're encouraging believers to serve the Lord. We don't serve mm -hmm. to earn status, mm -hmm. right? We serve because he is the Lord who has redeemed us. And so we are free. You know, some of the uh, early uh, Puritans, in particular Baptists, might even use the phrase evangelical obedience. Right? We serve out of being freed by the wonderful gospel mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ. And so we want to get the doctrine of Christ right, but we also want to understand that all of those things are not just academic truths. They're, they're, they're truths which point us to the reasons why he is the Lord and is worthy of worship and service. Amen. Amen. And the irony is we were set free from one slavery and then brought into another slavery. That's right. That's into, right. Into Christ's service. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Paul brings that out well, like in first Corinthians seven, you know, where if you're, um, if you're a freed man, you're a slave of Christ. Um, and so I think that having that mindset will help us to, to serve Christ better. And it's not a, it's not a slavery that comes out of being dragged in and, mm -hmm. and a burdensome slavery. It's yeah. it's a joy to serve our Lord. That's Amen. we want to be in His bond. Yeah, humanity will be in slavery to something. So yep. why not be in slavery to the the wonderful, gracious, all good, all powerful Master? Yeah. Amen. Amen. So in, in question thirty six, um, we see that the passion of the Christ is dealt with. Um, jump ahead here a little bit. Uh, what do you believe when we say he suffered? And I think this is a, another calling back to the doctrine of God in terms of, of God's being uh, what I guess what you would call his impassibility. But when we, we talk about his suffering, uh, what are we referring to and what are we not referring to in, in terms of how we use our language? Yes, the doctrine of impassibility uh, is, is a, uh, a crucial part. Are you there, Pastor Davidson? You've frozen on our end. Yeah. Am I back with you? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. Sorry. I'm not sure what happened. Um, but I'll start with the, the, the beginning answer of 36. It says that he all the time of his life, which he led on earth, but especially at the end of it. So we, we, we need to understand that Jesus, according to his humanity, right? According to his humanity, um, suffered and and experienced trial his entire life long but we we often locate the passion or the suffering of Christ as we ought to 
um, you know, that, that, that what we call some people call passion week, but specifically at the cross. But I think what you're getting at and, and steer me in a direction, if you want to go somewhere else, is that when, when we talk about the, uh, the second person of the Trinity, when we talk about our redeemer, he is truly God and truly man. Mm. And it is the person that that acts, but he acts according to both natures. So I like to think sometimes about the infant in the manger, if you will. The idea that here is this so-called helpless infant, according to his humanity, who is at the same time, according to his divinity, and Hebrews 1, upholding all things by the word of his power, right? Mm. Our confession um, speaks, I believe, in chapter 8 to Christ acting according to both natures, that which is proper unto that particular nature. So when we say that Jesus suffered, we we mean that he he suffered, he experienced suffering and, and changes from the outside, conditions from the outside, according to his humanity, but it was his divinity. And you referenced this, brother, earlier, that was adding an eternal weight to the entire sacrifice and upholding it if you will. And this gets kind of technical, but I think that might be where you wanted to go, that we, we, mm-hmm. we don't mean that, that God is, according to his divinity, that God is dying, that God is changing, that God is suffering or being acted upon uh, by the creature, but that, that the uh, Son of God suffered according to his, his humanity. Does that make sense? Questions on that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where... Um, I think people might get tripped up when they're talking about the hypostatic union. We tend to mix the natures because it's in, we have a hard time thinking outside of it. I mean, it's, it's a miracle, I guess you could say that there was this union between God and human flesh. Um, nothing had ever been seen like that before. So we tend to speak in this language of uh, mixing the natures, I think, yeah. um, especially as it relates to the passion. Like if Jesus suffered, then how could he be God? Did God die? Did God actually experience suffering in his divine nature um and yeah you say it's technical but i think we have to be technical yeah um yeah. and that might scare people off but that's who we are that's what our faith is our, our faith is a technical faith yeah. it, it requires us to think and use our um, use the brains that god has given us to really work these things out as best we can yeah that's um, right. because who christ is is so important so mm-hmm. important all right, moving on to question 42. Uh, what other benefit do we receive by the death of Christ? And specifically, I want to focus in on um, the union with Christ aspect in this question, if you wanted to discuss that a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, I, I think just practically speaking, when we talk about the doctrine of union with Christ, you know, Paul in the book of Ephesians speaks to that. He references that some 27, 28 times it's mm. said that we are with Christ, in Christ. Chapter 1 of Ephesians is, is rich with that, but it's not the only chapter in the New Testament that speaks to our union with Christ, but that by faith we're united to him, and his death becomes our death, right? Mm-hmm. And his resurrection, and I know we may talk briefly about this in a moment, but his resurrection becomes our resurrection. The scripture says he is the, the first fruits, and so, you know, I've got this garden raised garden beds in my backyard some seasons are better than others uh and you know when that first tomato comes i know okay that's what kind of plant this is i had forgotten when i planted it that's what kind of plant this is and oh by the way there's more coming right i don't want to bring 
union with Christ down to my tomato plant, but there's a sense in which we will be raised too because we are united with him, right? Mm -hmm. His empty tomb is our empty cemetery plot soon to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so this union with Christ is a is a mystical reality, but it, it brings about certain benefits. Um, and, you know, uh, Collins there speaks to this of our old man, you know, and I'm just kind of looking at the answer that he lays out, our old man being buried with him. Um, and also, I love the fact that he talks there about sin no longer reigning, right? Because according mm. to Romans 6, uh, Christ died to sin. It doesn't mean he was a sinner, but he died to sin. And so sin no longer condemns the believer, but sin no longer reigns mm. over the believer. Yes, we sin, but sin no longer, as, as you mentioned, brother, earlier, sin is no longer our, our Lord, right? Mm. It's no longer our master. And so there's much we could say here, but this doctrine is rich because it shows us that in union with him, our life now and our life to come is bound up in him and it is secure. Amen. Amen. And I think that's why having an important uh, view of covenant theologies is important here too, because you see this aspect of federal headship being laid out where we were in Adam, he represented us um, and we died in him. But now that we're united to Christ under the new covenant with him being our federal head, now we have those benefits that we receive uh, the same. So it's, it's the same if we we inherited what Adam gave us, but in Christ we inherited what He gave us, um, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a glorious truth that we have that all those things are are ours, and and that's our security and our rest. Yeah, Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm thinking as you're mentioning covenantal, uh, the, the, you know, just covenant theology and the reality of the covenant. Just Hebrews eight pops into mind, right? Mm -hmm. And just mm -hmm. when the writer's talking about the new covenant, just that precious reality, that promise, I will remember there sins no more right mm. now there's just a way it, it, it yes it flows out of union with christ because he is the redeemer he has redeemed us ourselves but by faith in him alone we um, we are the beneficiaries of all of of his benefits and all the things that he has earned and accomplished and and we receive the promise of the triune god i will remember their sins no more right because of his covenant with us mm. Yeah, and, and that's a covenant, you know, going back to his immutability, that's a covenant that will never break because he swore by himself. You know, mm -hmm. early, right. Book of Hebrews talks about that as well. There's no one higher to swear by but himself, and therefore we will be secure until the end. Yeah, We yeah. will continue yeah. to have those benefits applied to us. Yeah, that's good. All right, moving on to question um, 43. And um, this one is a, a little bit of a controversial one. Um, why is there added, he descended into hell? And that's referring to the creed there. Um, I know that even within the reform camp, there's a, a couple of interpretations of what that means. Uh, do you have one that uh, you hold to, uh, Pastor Davidson, or do you want to discuss the various views there? Yes. Well, how much time do we have? No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> you... you you said it perfectly. There, there are probably at least at least two dominant views within the Reformed camp. I mean, you see one of them laid out here in an Orthodox catechism, right? And mm -hmm. just for the listeners' sake, just the the understanding that. Uh, well, firstly, let's go to this. You know, can a believer quote the entire Apostles' Creed and assent to all of it? 
right? That's a question. I know some people out there mm -hmm. have said, I can't say that phrase, he descended into hell, because I don't believe he did ascend into hell, they would say, right? And uh, folks uh, utilizing this catechism, along with a lot of Reformation era persons would say, no, you can say that. And their view is that essentially, and you see his answer there, that in my greatest pains and most grievous temptations, I may support myself with this comfort that my Lord Jesus Christ has delivered me um, essentially from the torments of hell, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so you, you almost get some people who would say that descent into hell means that this, um, Jesus took uh, my hell for me or Jesus uh, suffered the torments of hell for me. But I think there's another there's another historic view that would argue that Jesus actually died and took the victory of his death all the way to. To the, the Hades and to the to the underworld, essentially, and and I'm I'm kind of by and you know a friend of mine. Some of you may have seen this book, but but Sam has written a book within the last year, Cruxmore's in Fairy, and basically he makes the argument that and I'll let your readers read the book, but that historically and even biblically, Christ's victory goes all the way to the very uh, under underworld, if you will, that, that Christ took the victory of his death over sin and over Satan all the way to uh, Hades itself, right? And you can you can read mm -hmm. the book there. Sam says it much better. And you asked me, brother, if I have a view. I've never quite publicly said this, but I would say that until I read Sam's book and perhaps thought, deeply about it, I probably would have leaned towards the Orthodox catechism view that, that's listed there. But I am, if you had to nail me down, I probably have become a little convinced of some of our brother, uh, Dr. Sam Renahan's arguments in that book. And so I think the beauty is that both groups can confess the dissent. We don't need to... Hmm. Neither view is, in my opinion, heretical, um, and both gloriously picture the work of Christ in his uh, humiliation and then ultimately in, the, in his exaltation, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot there. I don't, I don't know if either of you have a particular view or a leaning uh, that you've got. Um, I've, I've kind of given you a little bit maybe of my journey there. Any thoughts you guys have? Yeah, I definitely would take the view that he did descend into Hades um, in, in, in that sense. Um, that's yeah. how I understand um, uh, he descended and preached to the spirits in prison. Um, that okay. verse, yeah. and uh, I can't remember. First Peter. Yeah, for First Peter. Yeah. 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 That's how I would understand that going on there. Um, I don't know. Do you have a... Yeah, same. And I've, I've read Sam's book. Um, and I thought it was very helpful and very enlightening. I think I've always had kind of the view that um, Jesus did descend to the abode of the dead. And, and when he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, it, it, was, it wasn't referring to heaven necessarily, but it, the abode of the dead where uh, Abraham's bosom is. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's that's how I see uh, the scriptures to be laid out in that way. And Sam was quite convincing, I think, from 
from a historical perspective and then also from the exegetical perspective. Um, yeah, and, and I would just say, yeah, I'm sorry, brother. Go no, no, go ahead. I, I would just say, uh, Sam also does a good job in that book of making sure to make clear that what is not meant is that there was more suffering for Jesus to do after he died right. on the cross. That the yep. suffering was finished. The debt had been paid. There wasn't more purgatory to experience or any of that. But that the descent was actually a victorious announcement, right? In a sense, right? And, and again, I, I don't want to mix or put words in his mouth. Read read his book. But that's that's that may scare some listeners who may say, wait a minute, is the cross not sufficient? No, it is. And that that's actually part of the argument. But I would just say to the listeners, either view that you take, I think you can confess. Some churches use the Apostles' Creed in their public worship. They confess it in public worship. Some don't. Um, but I think you can confess he descended into hell. Mm. And we don't need to be afraid of, uh, of that state. It's an historic statement in the creed. Um, and I don't think it's one that we have to make excuses over or be afraid of. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it, as more people understand the historical understanding and, and the exegetical they won't be so intimidated by it because there are those, um, especially in the word of faith movement. I've heard mm -hmm. Joyce Meyer say um, that Jesus did actually go to hell in terms of where we would go and suffer the pains um, of hell, which would be heretical, I think, because um, that that's that's outside of, I think, of orthodoxy. Jesus did not mm -hmm. go to the physical place of hell. Um, he suffered on the cross. And like mm -hmm. you said, it's done. It's finished on the cross. There is no more suffering needed. But. Um, but yeah, I think this understanding terminology and maybe even translation, because I think Hades can mm -hmm. be translated in different ways and, and people might take it different ways. But um, but yeah, just having understanding the historical reality and the proper exegetical reality, I think will help uh, people to understand that further. Yeah, the, the Greek word Hades really, as far as I can see, it just means place of the dead. Yep. Right. So it's not necessarily what, what we think of hell, how we think of the place where the unrighteous dead end up. Mm -hmm. Right. Um. Yeah, but Hades is a little bit broader than that. Yep. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. All right. So question 44, I think we talked about this a little bit, but maybe we can, can dive into it a little bit more. But uh, question 44 talks about Christ's resurrection. And uh, Colin says, what does the resurrection of Christ profit us? And this might even tie into, and it's right after he talks about the descent, so it might even tie into... Uh, kind of the the victory and the descent, but what uh, what do we receive in being in union with Christ as it relates to His uh, resurrection? I'm one of those guests that gets ahead of myself, uh, and I did that. <laughs> I did that a few minutes ago. I just, I just started pre, you know, the union with Christ and resurrection, and so I'll just maybe point back to what I was saying there. A few extra things when we talked about in not reigning over us. Um, mm. We talk uh, the fact that we're living resurrection life now, not, not fully in our bodies and that we, you know, we don't have to have to face a uh, physical death, but, but that the, you know, the life that we have now is a life where we're not sin um, that we have master who has been uh, raised to his conquered death. And the cemetery believer is actually something that points a glorious reality that is to come. And, and I say it that way in that kind of vivid language on purpose. You know, I, 
uh, as a pastor for, you know, a li- at least a little while, I've done quite a few funerals. And one of the mm. kind of most special times for me is, and it's a sad time, but it's standing in the cemetery at the end of a funeral, you know, the family and maybe some of the church are gathered there and uh, the, the kind of empty body of the, the person who has uh, died to go and be with the Lord is, is, you know, is placed there. And it's such a sad time. And, you know, some people say it's kind of a, a morbid place, you know, just a cemetery. But the reality is the resurrection of Christ means that that is a temporary location. And that location actually can point to the reality that this person will be raised. Mm. Um, and there is grief and there is sorrow. But the reality is that the resurrection of Christ assures us because we're united to him of our resurrection. Mm. To, to come and so it it makes emergency rooms and ICUs and funeral homes and deathbed visits um, it, it, it makes them a place even though they're filled with sadness it, it makes them a place where there is indeed hope because this person uh, because of Christ and Christ alone will be raised um, and so sin no longer reigns Death is not something that will hold us, and these are realities that are precious for us. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the scriptures say, I think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we are going to be raised with, uh, in the same way, in a sense that he ra- he was raised, right? He ascended, we're going to ascend, he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. All that becomes our own. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's a glorious truth that we have. And our bodies will be made new. We'll have new bodies just like Christ did, and we will be able to um, worship him uh, kind of as he um, as he is in a sense. Um, so we have those glorious truths in the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so our, our final discussion here, in, in question 51, um, he talks about really uh, the promises that we have uh, in Christ. He says, what comfort do you have by the coming of Christ again to judge uh, the living and the dead? So how can the promises here uh, really help us in the Christian life and, and bring us comfort, peace, and, and security as we move towards uh, our final destination? Yes, and I think, you know, we often think about the return of Christ as uh, full of hope for the believer because we will go to be with Christ. We will be raised with resurrection, glorified bodies. Uh, we will see the full extent of our salvation, right? And so, you know, Collins points to that here. But one of the other things that I think he points to that the creed also points to is the reality that the Lord will come as a judge over our enemies. And ultimately, Mm. yes, there are enemies, but they're they're ultimately Christ's enemies. And, And we as believers don't look at that and say, you know, yes, I can't wait for someone to be, you know, when we got to be careful doing that because it's going to be hard not to do it without sinful hearts and losing love for, for, for others. But there is a sense in which our sufferings, our persecutions for the name, perhaps ours, but definitely others around the world, our martyrdoms will be not only vindicated, mm. but also Christ will, he will judge and stamp out every evil. And so mm. there will not be a single sin or injustice that will not be utterly dealt with by the wrath of God, either at Calvary 2,000 years ago 
or when Christ returns. Mm. And so this is a precious promise, not that we want to revel in others experiencing the, the, the judgment of God. Actually, that should propel us to proclaim Christ in the gospel, mm. but that the promises there in the, that statement that he will come to judge the living and the dead is that we will be vindicated. We will be seen as his. He will say, well done, good and faithful servants. We will see our glorious Lord and Savior and our enemies, really his enemies, will be, will be judged. And he will enter us into the new heaven and the new earth where there will not be pain and suffering and evil and injustice. And these are wonderful realities. Right? So I, I, I think, I think the, the catechism answer there is good because it doesn't just say, I can't wait for him to return because we're going to go to heaven. Right? It is that, but it's more. Right? Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Davidson, thank you for joining us today. Sometimes it's good to go back to these basic truths. I think sometimes as, as Reformed people, we tend to jump for the difficult stuff. And, and I think sometimes we can miss these, uh, these basic truths. Christianity 101. Who is Christ? Who is the, the Lord that we claim to believe in? Um, and that can be that's just as crucial sometimes as some of these other doctrines that we we discuss. So we, we thank you for taking the time to discuss with us today. Absolutely, brothers. Thanks for what you're doing and uh, for serving Christ Church and for having me on today. You're very welcome. Well, with that, everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, Lord willing, we will be back next week. And until then, have a great weekend and a great Lord's Day. God bless.